Well, this is the part of Toby Haddock's Who's Round where I always talk in pure quotes. I'm going to ask him to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about, among other things, Doctor Who. Hi, my name's Ralph Watson. I played Captain Knight in The Web of Fear, which is shortly going to be released upon the world again. I played in The Monster of Peladon. I played Etis, who was a revolutionary miner. Goes back to my own home background, which was full of revolutionary miners. And I played Ben, the adventurous 19th century scientist in the horror of Fang Rock with Tom Baker. And I also played a generator scientist in the as yet unseen Underwater Menace. Yes, yeah, so the Underwater Menace was your first uh, Doctor, and as you said, it's quite a small part. Um, uh, in, in the final episode, chatting to Joseph First. That's right, so how, the how Joseph that, First. How had that come about? Well, that came about, it was one of my introductions to the BBC, because as an actor I'd begun in a repertory company in Derby, and a member of the same company, a fellow actor, who also had a penchant for directing, was a guy called Gareth Gwenlin, and Gareth, when he left rep, joined the BBC and did a producer training course there and ended up as assistant to Julia Smith who directed it and went on to greater things like uh, EastEnders and stuff and uh, I rang Gareth up and said did he know any anything in telly that I could sort of apply for and he said oh I'm doing this thing with uh, Joseph First and Julia Smith I'll ask her if there's anything in it and came back on the phone and said, there's this scientist, would you be interested in that? And I said, yes. I went in, saw Julia and got the job and did it. It was one of my first sort of intros to the BBC, really, as, a, as, a, as an actor on television. And J- Julia, by some accounts, is quite an imposing figure. Do you remember her? Well, she was sort of strict in the head girl, you know. She went into the head girl ca- category. There was another one that I worked with with Tom Baker, Paddy Russell, yeah. who is still with us, thank goodness. And uh, she was, you know, firm hockey school, ho- hockey girls captain in school sort of attitude, no nonsense. Tom was having a difficult time at that. He wasn't perfectly happy about having to move from London and do his work up in Birmingham. And uh, he, he, he was having troubles, you know, finding himself in the part. And he'd been given a new leading lady, the well-known beauteous person. And uh, he was a bit sort of disinclined to accept direction. But she knocked that out of him in about two rehearsals. You know. <laughs> that's the kind of girl she was, yes. Yeah, yeah she, well, she worked uh, at Cartier, hadn't she? That's she? right. Oh, absolutely. And Julia was similar. It was just that, don't forget, they were very much women in a man's world at that time. And we were talking about early 60s, you know. And they had to probably, I think it came out when they did the thing with Bill, the, the drama production about Bill playing the first Doctor Who, they came out that women had to be stronger than men and more upfront than men, otherwise the men would just ride over them, lied them and not know that they were there. But no, not pleasantly so, neither of them, they were just firm and made 
clear what they wanted and didn't let you go till they got it. It's as simple as that. Yeah. And what about uh, Joseph First? Because he's he was quite an actor. Joseph First. Yeah. <laughs> it was intriguing to me because um, I'm a pre-war person, pre-Second World War person, and was aware, you know, very much aware of, of uh, the setup of the Second World War and Nazism. And he, of course, was a refugee from all of that. But he had a Viennese quality about him. It's very difficult to to sort of convey to people who weren't aware that there was a strain of Viennese acting in films, particularly Anton Wolbrook, Wolbrook as he was in England, people like that, whose charm, I suppose people nowadays would think it was probably a bit on the greasy side, but it certainly wasn't then. And Joseph had that. He also had that sort of inner steel sort of performance so that you could be misled by the charm into thinking that he was a pushover, a walkover. There was nothing of the sort. And uh, he was just intriguing because he connected. Well, I'm, always, I'm always interested when I work with my fellow actors about their background, how they came to be where they are. We talked about Jack Watling, didn't we, today? And I was always intrigued by his origins and his struggles as a young actor as he was in mine. And uh, the same with Joseph. I, I, I wanted to know about that scene, the German expressionist, which is what he came out of, expressionist scene. So it was, that was fascinating too, yeah. So, so the fact that I was just doing something in, you know, an episode that didn't last very long, the rewarding side of that is that I was given a vision of an entirely different sort of behaviour and world, you know. And it's always like that. Well, you've sort of encapsulated what this podcast is all about, in fact, in that, you know, I'm interested in, in knowing where, um, you know, actors come from and what, what inspires them, and, and you in particular, because I know that, you know, we're used to you playing these very uh, well-spoken, we were talking before about you played lots of officers and so but you're from working-class Geordie Stock. that's right, absolutely, entirely, yes, completely. When I, when I left Newcastle as an actor, which was in... Uh, 1962, I, I'd, I'd had a, a history in Newcastle of working for a theatre which had been founded by Bernard Shaw. It was an amateur theatre called the People's Theatre. What a surprise, it was called the People's Theatre. And had always had a sort of left-wing viewpoint. Uh, when I joined it, the, the Communist Party was still lively enough to have three or four actors there, as was the Labour Party, having, you know, ten or twelve actors there, but, you know, definitely inclined that way. And in actual fact, while I was there, um, the people who owned a soap company, I have to be careful what I say here, but the people who owned a very well-known international soap company decided to take over the local soap company in Newcastle and imported all their young men who all had huge degrees from Cambridge and Oxford and they were told of course that the cultural centre in Newcastle was this people's theatre so suddenly this rather leftish <laughs> green room was invaded by a lot of suits from the guns and there became an actual power struggle in the theatre between these new sort of people uh, who were prepared to sort of fight to take over the theatre. So it was quite lively off stage as well as on stage at the time. You know? and, that, and that's the background that I came out of. I, uh, my father uh, had fought right through the First World War. Both my father and my mother were Victorians. 
My father would be something like 125 years old if he was alive today, and my mother would be 114. So I, I, I was brought up in a particular, you know, nuanced view of what was going on in the world. And as I say, we during my teens, I, from about the age of 11, right up to went to university, I lived in a for the Carla Pitt village, yeah, in in Northumberland. Uh, and was surrounded by working pitmen and stuff like that. Surprising as it may seem, out of all of that, I went to do fine art, which was my degree in Newcastle University, as it was not then. It was a college belonging to Durham University. My degree is a Durham degree, not a Newcastle degree, but I'm an alumni of Newcastle University, which is, I never quite got my head around, but that's the way it is. And... Uh, I taught art in Newcastle itself for about four years. One of the members of this theatre, who was four years younger than me, still is, strangely enough, four years younger than me, was Jack Shepard. And Jack and I knew each other because I used to direct university reviews. Uh, and do sketch shows and stuff like that and he and a couple of friends of mine got together and uh, used to perform together and it came as a surprise to me that towards the end of my time in Newcastle he appeared at my door at about one o'clock in the morning and I let him in and uh, he said can I go through these with you and I said what's these he said these pieces audition pieces he said yes and I said, uh, well, what's all this about? He said, well, I've got an audition for the Central School of Drama and I'm catching the milk train tonight and I'd just like to go through them with you before I go down. So I sat and listened to all this and off he went. And he got into Central, which then radically s- split into the London Drama Centre and Central and he went with the London Drama Centre lot and was working, uh, was, uh, you know, working... Uh, in the drama school in Camden, just down from where I was living, just starting my acting career in London. And during that period, we exchanged letters. I used to write him letters about what life was like in the reps, what I was doing, and he used to write letters about what was happening in Central and how the school was splitting up and stuff like that. Jacket and I, of course, are still good friends and have been all, all, all through since then. So, um, although it was supposedly, you know, this sort of cut-off part of the northeast, in actual fact, we were really quite well connected. And uh, I just got on my scooter one day and scooted from Newcastle down to Derby. Strange thing about that was that I'd just finished playing. Tanner in Man and Superman and we actually did the hell scene which is not normally played when you do Man and Superman you cut the hell scene because it's so it's about an hour and a quarter long adds about and makes a play run about three and a half to four hours but we did it on the Sunday so that people could come and see the missing piece on the Sunday and that was my last work for them at that theatre and I went down on my scooter and I followed the great big car that had I'd been driving about in on the stage. It was a 1905 Buick or something on, on a low loader, 
and I followed it all the way down till I turned right in Yorkshire to get down to Derby. Uh, 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 and I, I, I walked into a theatre foyer then and started work. Having done, I think I did 50 plays in Newcastle, but the theatre had a rule. They wouldn't put a play on unless it was what they deemed as being worthy of being put on. And that was strange, because it meant that the 100% of plays, just about 90% of plays that amateur companies normally do, were not allowed. No Noel Coward was ever allowed to cross the footlights. All the plays, you know, we did Ibsen till it came out of your ears, we did Shaw till it came out of your ears. I was doing things like Hugo Betty's The Burnt Flower Bed, we're doing all the sort of Giroudoux army, we did all of this stuff. We never touched, you know, what the entertainment play. The entertainment play was thrown out before it even got into rehearsal. And lo and behold, my first play... <laughs> in the Profession Theatre was called The Amorous Prawn <laughs> about, some, about some soldiers living it up in a hotel in Scotland and, and I had to learn I the, great, the terrible thing about me going to the theatre was that I'd always had six weeks to rehearse and learn the parts and I was going into fortnightly prep and I was expected to know the scene that I'd rehearsed you know, on the Monday off by heart on the Tuesday and that was very hard for me. I used to get on the scooter and go out into Derbyshire to the dove holes and pound this stuff. And why it was so difficult was it was rubbish, you see. I mean, it's all right learning Shakespeare, learning Shaw, you know, there's something that you can, there's a logical sort of background to the words that you can get your mind and your teeth into. But things like the Amherst Prawn don't have that. <laughs> It's about, you know, could you, could you bring the cigarette over? I can't quite reach, you know, and uh, have another whiskey, Colonel, and all of that. The inconsequential sort of stuff. And you have to be, you see, this is a... You have to be really good at it to get that stuff into your head and be natural with it because there's nothing except you and the character to carry that. There's no great intellectual argument. There's no... Sort of way in which you can sort of say, well, I'm delivering an idea here. It wasn't. I remember we had an actress came, and she was told by the director to get up from the sofa where she was sitting and go to the sideboard at the back of the stage. He suddenly interrupted her and said, could you get up there, Julian, and go to the back? And she said, why? And uh, he said, well, because it's a better, it's a better stage picture if you're back. She said, but what's my reason? Why should I get up? He said, well, you know, as I said, it looks much better if when you're delivering the next speech, you're standing up there rather than sitting where you see your knees on the city at the front. She said, but I don't know why. And a very experienced actor, our leading man, from whom I learned any grace that uh, I've ever possessed as an actor, a wonderful actor called Michael Hall said to me, he said, I know what the trouble is, Jenny, and the trouble is that what you're asking me for is a motivation. You want to know your motivation, don't you? And she said, yes, oh, Michael, oh, you do understand. Yes, I want to know my motivation for getting up. And he said, it comes in a little brown envelope 
at the Treasury Call every Friday. <laughs> and if you want to pick it up, I would go to the back of the stage. <laughs> and, 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 and in a way, you see, that, uh, uh, that was it. And it was a training that, that still stands me in good stead. You know, I don't, uh, I'm interested, though, because you were talking about your background... Um, and I wondered if, therefore, you saw drama as a way of doing something important or whether the fact that you just loved acting was the reason that you became an actor or if actually it's, it was a way of escaping your background and if, if the work that you wanted to do was stuff that, that broke barriers and said something and did something. Um, there's a lot of truth in all of those things. I mean, the thing was that acting to me has always been an innate thing I've never been to a drama school I've never been trained in drama I went, as I said I was teaching one Saturday and the next Saturday I was performing in front of people in Derby Right? but I'd never stopped doing it to see what I mean I mean I did 50 plays at the, the theatre I'm talking about I also did university drama at the same time in fact the thing that it got in the way of was my art. I had a very happy and successful career in the uni, in the department. I, last year I was invited to the Tate Gallery by Nicholas Sirota as part of the Richard Hamilton celebrations because Richard Hamilton was my master of design, you know. And, 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 but my art suffered because it didn't get all my concentration. It was a bit like acting. I knew, I knew that from an early age I could draw. I knew from a later age that I could paint. And I was quite happy to do that. What I never did with that was push any boundaries or any frontiers. And, and um, it suffered because I could always say, oh, well, I'll do that later. I must get, you know, I'm, I'm playing Richard II. You know, and that takes up a lot of my time. But I, I, I'll do. I'll go into the department tomorrow, and I'll catch up on stuff. So, uh, although I complete the course, and I say, I, I taught it. I, you know, I wouldn't. Some of my personal friends on a notable artists of the present time. I would never include myself anywhere near any of those, uh, because that was the thing that went by the way. Socially. It looks, from what I've told you, that that would be the case. But in actual fact, I've had, un, un, how can I say it? I've had people who have mentored me, without me, in a sense, asking or knowing about it. When I first, um, I must have been at the beginning of the, uh, the Second World War. The beginning of the Second World War. I lived in Biker, a known, you know, well-known working-class suburb of Newcastle Lake, and it was bombed. I remember being in my father's arms while we went out and watched dogfights and we watched searchlights and German planes. And my mother took me to a cinema in Biker called the Apollo and brought me home and took me up to bed. Uh, upstairs, uh, went downstairs from my bedroom and turned into the 
corridor leading to the back of the house as the whole of the front door window came in and went like knives into the stairs up to upstairs. My goodness. And because of one of the reasons, my father fell off a timber stack. He was a timber carrier in a timber yard. He fell off a timber stack 40 foot high carrying a piece of green heart timber and was concussed at home in those days. No hospitalisation, no, no ambulance. He was brought home from work and put into bed upstairs and lay unconscious for three weeks <laughs> with doctor's visits paid for half a crown a month and my mother looked after him and I tiptoed about the house and when he recovered his boss who was a very caring sort of uh, patron like boss came round and said don't worry Ralph you get your job you call the same as me uh, don't worry you get your job back but we better not let you carry timber for a while almost as he said that the raids intensified and they decided to move the whole business out of the quayside in Newcastle into a posh part of Newcastle. So at the age of five, I was translated from heavy working class Newcastle into upper class Jesmond Newcastle. Jesmond used to have, you know, people used to tell stories. They used to say, oh yes, Jesmond, all curtains and no knickers. You know, it's a sort of middle-class <laughs> refuge. And, and I then was translated into a totally different milieu. At the same time, my boss's wife, to whom he was being unfaithful, as it happened, and had time on her hands, took me and some other neighbourhood children under her wing. And now when I say that, I meant, I mean, literally, she took us into her house and fed us with things that we would never get at home, and also played us Chopin on the piano and let us do crosswords with her, and I began an intellectual life at that time that would have been impossible at home. My parents were enlightened enough to welcome this and say how good it was and how nice it was and didn't at all interfere with it. So at that period I was leading sort of parallel home lives with two different sets of values and parents and a war on and everything else, you know. And then at the end of that, when the war finished, they brutally, surprisingly, they couldn't find... My, the house that I was brought up in, the one that I'm talking about was bombed, was totally bombed, eradicated, didn't exist anymore. So they couldn't put my mother and father back where their heart and family was, which is his East End Newcastle. They shipped them out to what my mother used to think of as Indian country, to where the Pitmen lived, the wild, wild Pitmen who had no restraints and no laws and no rules and my mother immediately adopted a sort of covered wagon ring when we got there I wasn't allowed out, I wasn't allowed to play with other children in case I was contaminated by the pit and it took a while for that to break down and at the same time the Labour government introduced the ability for people like me to go to grammar school and I got a scholarship to grammar school so I 
although I was living in a pit village, I was travelling into Newcastle to go to my grammar school. I used to take my uniform off on the bus and put it in my haversack, or satchel as we used to call them in those days, so that I didn't get duffed up by the boys who saw me in the grammar school uniform when I got back to my pit village. And I then made relationships with them, which eventually precluded all of that. So again, I have this sort of dual thing. I had this grammar school education, the high-class suburb of Newcastle, Gosforth, and then I went home to my pit village every night. Great grounding for a character actor, then. Well, yes. (laughs) Yes. And then I went to uni in in Newcastle. So so, I've, I've always floated between several worlds, you know. But I think I've been pretty grounded in... When I, when I, I did a show called Close the Coal House Door, right? Which was all about the whole history of the mining movement from the air dot up to nationalisation and beyond, right? And it was a satirical, um, historical, emotional uh, show that was based on a grandfather's golden wedding celebration with everybody in the village the vicar and his friends and people from the pit and his two grandsons whose father and mother mother died of TB and their father had been killed in a pit accident in with the whole family group strangely enough I played the younger son who was at uni and was brought with his very posh girlfriend who you might remember as the girl in Get Carter, was brought, you know, into the family circle with his brother, who was a hard-working face pitman, you know, in, in, in the thing. I did this show, and I went to see my mother in, uh, when we were in Newcastle, I went to see my mother in the village. I went home, and there was an old pitman saw me in the uh, main street and said, what are you doing here, like, Rafi? And I said, oh, I'm doing this show. No, you're saying play. I said, I'm doing a show. Oh, you're doing a show. Oh, I see, I see. And what's that all about then? I said, it was about the pits. You know, it's about um, the miners. Oh, hey, and I'll boot that then. I said, uh, yes, I know about that. And he said, uh, is, is it all about I said, oh, it's very good. He said, uh, how do you talk in that? What sort of talk is it? I said, it's um, Geordie. We're doing it all in Geordie. Oh, I said, hi. He said, well, ye know what a netty snack is, and walked away. <laughs> a netty snack is the catch on the door of an outside loo. <laughs> Geordies, because they're well-educated, refer to the loo in the French term, nettoyer, place where you wash yourself. So that was a sort of pat on the back, you know, saying, well, you know what it's all about, because... You know, you've been here. You're authentic. Yes, you're authentic, yes. And, and, and um, that was, of course, very, very heartening to me. I mean, I, it was funny. We used to bus people in from mining areas to see the show. They came in on buses organised by what was then the NCB, the National Coal Board, who ran the whole industry. They used to bus these pitmen in. And some of them hadn't really been told what they were in for. And I remember going through the theatre to get to the back through an audience that was an assembling together, you know, and there was an old pitman standing looking rather puzzled, and he, 
he obviously saw me as somebody who would know and so I grabbed my arm and said um, excuse me can you look at this and it was his ticket you see and I said yes I said um, you've got a ticket you've seen tonight's show you'll enjoy it I said he said no no he said I want to know where I'm going to sit I said well the seat the seat number and everything it's on your ticket have you ever seen it he said I've got no knee seat on me it, it doesn't say a seat I said it does look it says stalls row B seat 12 ah he said there you are you see knee seat and I said what do you mean no seat he said stalls where they put the ponies and of course in a pit the pit ponies were kept in part of the pit which was called the stalls the pit stalls for the ponies it's not you know took him down to the road put him in but that that you know we were that was only saying this because the people who were watching this show were, were people who knew all about it you know it was part of their not only their lives their grandfather's lives their father's lives which is one of the reasons why it was so successful you know? um well, we're nominally here to talk about Doctor Who, and I, I was talking to you before when we spoke earlier that um, I feel a bit guilty about the horror of Fang Rock, because Rio Fanning I did a lovely interview with, and he remembered absolutely nothing about it, so I feel the need to redress the balance with horror of Fang Rock, even though it's not, uh, uh, it's, it's one where you die quite early on. You've got, you've got memories of that you were talking about. Um, yes, well, I mean, it just hinges on to that. The person who played my grandfather in that was Colin Douglas, and so we worked together for two years touring this show and in the West End and um, when I got that particular Doctor Who of course I was anxious to know who was going to be living in this lighthouse with me you see because they want to establish a sort of rapport with with the, with the cast that you're going to be acting with so you don't you know so it just makes the whole thing easier and it was enormously happy surprise to find that it was Colin who had been playing my grandfather and couldn't be closer to me uh, than any actor at that particular time who was actually playing the lighthouse keeper, which was suited him down the ground. And of course, like me, well, he, he used his, his Geordie background in that particular character, so it was fine for me to do that. Yeah, and that was Paddy Russell, of course, who we mentioned yeah. earlier. Yeah. And you worked with three different doctors, Patrick Trout and John Pertwee and Tom Baker. So I wondered how you assessed them uh, as, as different actors and their approaches to acting. Well, they were entirely different actors. Pat, like myself, I mean, came out of a tradition where actors were supposed to sink their personalities into roles. There were, of course, West End stars but there weren't that many of them. And very often, even though they had a star uh, nature, like, say, Gilgood or Richardson, even though they were stars in the sort of accepted celebrity, this is the word I'm not new, celebrity sense, they were heavily respected craftsmen, actors, you know, and their first and foremost job was to go onto a stage and convince you about something. Uh, one step up from them was Olivia, who brought some celebrity to the roles he played. So really, although, I mean, I always think that why he is not, I don't think, a certain set of actors like myself who are not wholly sold on the Olivia performance is because we saw it as a performance. 
and I was never moved by Laurence Olivier. I used to watch him like, because all that, you know, the, I nearly said the word tricks, but I didn't really mean that. All his craft, I used to watch his craft to see how he manipulated and how he built things. And, and whenever I watched him, I'm always one removed from being absorbed by him because I'm watching the sort of technique. Rafe Richardson, I, I can't remember much of his technique because I was often so overwhelmed by the performance. Anybody who saw Flowering Cherry, which is, you know, one of the great English performances of my lifetime, anybody who saw that, you know, would know that. And that, I suppose the last in that tradition would be Schofield, which, as I said to you, I understand Schofield. But the, he was the last in that tradition where he would not have a celebrity. He actually ruled it out. He wouldn't go to parties. He refused the knighthood. The knighthood was sent and sent back. He wouldn't do it. And until the very last part of his life, when he decided to sort of relax a bit and have a bit of fun, you would never see him outside the theatre or on a horse. That's the only time you ever see him, on a horse or in the theatre. But, but nowadays we have a tendency, a tendency that the celebrity is more important than the performance, which, which worries me not unduly. Actors are often cast not because they're right or because their performance is going to enhance the role, but because their celebrity will bring people to put bums on seats. Which is, I mean, it's no, no job of mine to criticise that, but it's not my style. I don't do that, and I prefer actors like Rickman, you know, Alan Rickman. I prefer an actor who's known for the work he does rather than, you know, the life he lives, you know, and it's as simple as that. And I have that sort of view. This is brilliant. Well, I've, I've exceeded my time, so what I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, as, as, as I said, with a some of the listeners want to hear about Doctor Who, so I'm going to get one memory from each of the ones we haven't covered. I think you're brilliant, by the way, in um, uh, The Web of Fear. It's a lovely performance. It's a great character. So what's your, what's your chief memory of The Web of Fear? Well, I mean, um, you mean as a performer? Yeah. Well, it was a major role for me early on in my television career. And it was... Well, I suppose it was the first... You know, there were scenes that depended on me, and not I wasn't just walking in and walking out, and I was in command of the scenes for several of the scenes in several of the episodes, and that was a challenge to me. Could I do it, and would I be convincing? And I, I think I was. I mean, I look back at it now, as you know, I'm, I'm 78 now, and and uh, it's a different person from the person I am now. But I, I watched it today, and I thought the boy did good. The boy did do good. And what about what about Etis, the hot-headed badger miner in Monster of Peladon? Oh, well, of course the le- Now the legends begin. But you're talking about John Pertwee, who, of course, had an entirely different background. I mean, John's background was the variety theatre and comedy, and his whole family were involved in it. And he was a wonderful performer. He was a performer. You couldn't say that he was a character actor. He did turns. He did a whole lot of brilliant, brilliant, conceived turns, you know. In fact, I often think, when I see him now, another actor that I worked a lot with, 
Barker, uh, uh, Ronnie Barker, I often... Well, of course, they worked together. Yeah, they, uh, on the Navy Lark. That's right, they did it together on the Navy Lark. And, and he was... Well, Ronnie Barker's the most inventive comic I've ever known. He couldn't get through a, a conversation with him without inventing comedy. He was just so brilliant. And, um, but my comedy... I put my comedy cloak over here, because I did a lot of comedy. But, but, but John had that sort of flashiness and I mean this in the nicest possible way it, 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 the flamboyant in his clothes and, and his hairdos for goodness sake you know all of that was about what John Pertwee was as a person he was a performer and he was a brilliant performer well of course Tom Baker you know anybody who's worried his way through being the Catholic priest and you know all of that you know you can't say Tom is anything but not straightforward. He is a person who thinks and behaves deeply, even in Doctor Who. You can see the, the wheels working in his head. He's, a, he's not, not a performer in the sense that I'm talking about John Purvey. It's entirely different. Three entirely different Doctor Whos. I mean, I worked with Patrick in other things. I did, I did a, I think it was a Z cars or a one of the shoot-offs of Z cars where we were all crims in cells who could talk to each other when, they, when the police weren't there. We arranged a whole defence to get somebody off by shouting at each other through the bars. And, and Again, a totally different character part for Patrick, but then we expected that in those days, you know, character well, it's brilliant. Well, look, I could talk to you all night, except you very patiently walked halfway around London so we could find somewhere relatively quiet. So apologies for the sound quality, ladies and gentlemen, but these things are very hastily thrown together. Um, and also, I've got a gig tonight. Um, so I'm going to ask the two questions um, that I ask everybody. The first is you've kindly given your time, and nobody gets paid for this, and we don't charge for it. So what's your charity that you'd like the listeners to donate to, please, Ralph? The Heart Foundation, because my first job in London was in the Hart Foundation building off the King's Road. I did an amateur performance with uh, three other actors who became you know, notable actors for the Hart Foundation. I did my first actual London work for them. That's brilliant, and I will do a link. Um, and finally, um, we've, we've just passed the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, um, but what's your message to the Doctor Who fans out there who still consume the programme, even when it gets found? Oh, carry on, carry on, carry on, yes. Great. Well, what a pleasure, and thank you. Uh, it just remains for me to say, Ralph Watson, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks again. Bless you. Thank you. That was great. Uh, thank you to Ralph, whose charity is the British Heart Foundation, which is www.bhf.org.uk. bhf.org.uk. If you could donate to that, there'll be another Who's Round next time. And if you missed the fact that Ralph and I didn't talk much about uh, the Monster of Peladon or the Web of Fear, that's because we didn't have all that much time. And there are DVD commentaries out there, if you'd care to find them, featuring both Ralph and myself, where he answers those questions he often gets asked. And I thought it was uh, good to send, spend some time talking to him about other things. Um, thanks for listening. Cheerio.
doesn't break any speed limits and get himself into trouble. He's going to get himself killed one day, you know. Where am I? In the village. In the village. Désirez-vous un taxi, monsieur? Take me away from here. Where to? As far as you can go. I heard this was your first day. And my last. Why'd you say that, number six? Don't call me that. It's just the number of a house I woke up in. Nothing, number six. Philo. I don't know who you are. I don't know who you work for. And I don't care. Open that door or I'll break it down. There's no need for all this nonsense. All we want to know is why you resigned. Stop! Do not run! Halt! Stop running, man! Stop running! You don't stand a chance! We don't want any unhappiness in our beautiful village, and if Number Six behaved aggressively towards you... What's your real name? What's yours? You see? We're both scared to talk. This place is a madhouse. A bloody nightmare. Yes, get out of here. Yes, we must or they'll kill us. Worse. Worse. Orange alert. Orange alert. 